Well, this morning we are diving back into our sermon series on the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. I've said before, it is a very long book. It is 66 chapters long, so I will not be preaching through every single chapter. Instead, I'm dividing the book up into smaller chunks that teach a unified or cohesive theme that holds them together. And so far, we've done that in a few ways. Chapters 1 through 5 were Isaiah's expanded introduction to the problem, the big problem that essentially faces God's people in every age, and that is, how do a sinful, selfish, rebellious people fulfill the destiny that God's people are to be a blessing to the earth in holiness and justice? How can this sinful people be this holy people that God has promised that they will be? And so he lays out that question in the first part. And then in chapter 6, Isaiah describes his call to be a prophet, how he encountered the Lord in his holiness and how it changed Isaiah forever. And then over in Advent, we saw in chapter 7 through 12 that part of the hope for God's people lay in this promised child who would be born and would be a king over God's people to lead them to this promised blessing. Beginning this week, we are looking at the next large section of Isaiah, which is found in chapters 13 through 39. These chapters focus on trust, or the Bible word, faith. Trust or faith, they are the same thing. What do we trust in? What do we have faith in? Do we trust in God or in man? That is the fundamental issue in Isaiah and really for the whole Bible. Because we may say we trust in God, but what does our life reveal? Is our faith in God or in man? And if it is in man, is that person ourselves or someone else? With that in mind, if you would, open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 14. You can find it in the Pew Bible on page 686. If you brought your own Bible, Isaiah is roughly in the middle of the Bible. You can find it somewhat after the Psalms and before Jeremiah. Those are the other long books around it. Isaiah chapter 14. We're skipping over Isaiah 13, which deals of... God's judgment on the people of Babylon because chapter 14 continues talking about Babylon, but it narrows the focus to the king of Babylon and his downfall. That the king of Babylon was a man trusted by many and feared by all, certainly a man who trusted in himself and his own power and authority. And so here, the word of the Lord from Isaiah chapter 14, verses 1 through 32. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob and the peoples will take them and bring them to their place and the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil 
and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased! The insolent fury ceased! The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you. The cedars of Lebanon saying, Since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. All who were leaders of the earth, it raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, You too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn! How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low! You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? Who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities? Who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out, away from your grave like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial, because you have destroyed your land. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers never more be named. Prepare slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and posterity, declares the Lord. And I will make it a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water. And I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts has sworn. As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. That I will break the Assyrian in my land. And on my mountains trample him underfoot. And his yoke shall depart from them. 
and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed it, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? In the year that King Ahaz died came this oracle. Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken. For from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. And the firstborn of the poor will graze, and the needy will lie down in safety. But I will kill your root with famine, and your remnant it will slay. Wail, O gate, cry out, O city, melt in fear, O Philistia, all of you. For smoke comes out of the north, and there is no straggler in its ranks. What will one answer the messengers of the nation? The Lord has founded Zion, and in her the afflicted of his people find refuge. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, we give thanks for your word. We thank you that the words of prophets long ago still speak today. And we thank you that through Christ and by the Holy Spirit, we can understand your word. And so, God, use this word today for your word is living and active and powerful. And may it go forth. May it have entered in our ears and our minds and our hearts and to shape and change us. And use me to proclaim the word, to apply the word. And may my words be true, O God, in spite of my own sin and my own weakness. And whatever is untrue, may it fall on deaf ears. In Jesus' name, amen. Excuse me. Someone said something about sickness. I don't know what you're talking about. This morning, we are talking about pride a little bit, but mostly it is about trust. And the fact that we tend to trust in man whether that is ourselves or some other person instead of God. And what Isaiah is doing here is showing us how silly that really is. And he does it by showing us the king of Babylon and his fall. And so this morning we're going to look at who this king is. What is the identity of this king? We're going to look at his fall and what that tells us. And then how we are to respond to that fall. So first, who is this king of Babylon? If you've been here over the past few weeks, you've heard that the threat facing the people of Judah in this time, the time of Isaiah, was not Babylon. It was Assyria. So the Babylon Empire eventually takes over from Assyria. They conquer Assyria, but that's not until 100 years after Isaiah. So Isaiah here could be predicting the fall of some future king of Babylon. But it seems he's doing something just a little different here. He is using this king of Babylon as an example, a type, a fictional figure to stand in for mankind and the best of mankind. Because Babylon has always stood for that. We see this in our Old Testament reading from Genesis 11. And the Tower of Babel, that the city of Babylon takes its name from the Tower of Babel and that city. 
where they tried to build a tower to reach to the heavens because they wanted to make a name for themselves. They proudly wanted to be important, to have a lasting legacy, to be strong and sturdy enough that they would never lose all that they had built. And in the generations that followed, Babylon maintained that kind of spirit. Even during the time of Assyria's power, Babylon was an important and culturally relevant city. It was not the capital of the empire. It was more like a cross between Hollywood and New York. It was the city where you wanted to be. And to be the king of Babylon, that was like being the number one man in the land like an ancient hybrid of people's sexiest man alive and Time Magazine's person of the year, all combined into one. That's the king of Babylon. You, you had it all. But like the builders of the Tower of Babel, this king of Babylon wanted to achieve something greater than what anyone else had ever done. He wanted the glory. He wanted to make sure that people knew he had accomplished all of these things. And he doesn't sound very humble. In verses 12 through 15, when you start seeing what he's trying to say and what he wants to do, you're like, oh man. Well, ancient rulers were not very humble. They didn't need to be. Kings like the one Isaiah describes here lived like gods. And with that power, they fooled themselves into believing that they truly were invincible, that no one could stop these people like the king of Babylon. They appeared to have played the game of life and won. They had conquered their enemies, collected treasures, made alliances that still kept them as king. It is like a twisted translation of Genesis 1. They can say, look at all I have created and behold, it is very good. Good job by me. But that kind of pride described here of the king of Babylon does not go unpunished forever. But there is only one God, and he is happy to remind people of that fact. That just as the Tower of Babel was left to crumble, so he will bring down the pride of the king of Babylon. That God will judge the bloated pride of mankind because it is foolish to put our ultimate trust in any man. That judgment is a good thing for the world, something we celebrate Verses 4 through 21 are what Isaiah calls a taunt. It is a twist, a poem or song, but instead of being this mournful lament that they have lost this beloved figure, it is as if a jester composed it to taunt and laugh at this proud man who had finally died. These verses do not cry out because they've lost something. They cry out in glee and joy that the king is dead, that this big tree fell very hard. When we look at this poem, we can break it down into four different parts, seeing all the elements that's, that are going on here. First, in verses 4 through 8, we hear the relief of the earth, that the violent power of this king has been destroyed, and it says the whole earth is at rest. The machinations, the war, the struggle against this king is over. The constant threat of this power-hungry man has calmed. 
and creation breaks out in a song. Nature itself, depicted as the trees, rejoice that no one is coming to cut them down anymore. The world is better off now that this man is gone. The second part in verses 9 through 11 shifts the focus away from the relief of earth to kind of the reception of the underworld in Sheol. The Hebrews understood Sheol as the place of death or the grave. It was where the spirits of the dead existed as shades of their former selves. And these spirits are stirred up with interest seeing someone new enter their realm, this king of Babylon. And with both astonishment and glee, they greet him. You too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. This proud man responsible for the deaths of many has now joined them in death, showing that he was no different, that he is immortal no matter what he may say. It is captured grotesquely in verse 11, probably the most powerful image here in the taunt, where we read, Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. That is the fuel of nightmares. Right there. Surely the funeral for this great king of Babylon was grand with pomp and circumstance, showing much respect for him. But at the end of it, they lay him to rest, where his dead body will be consumed by maggots and worms, no different than a dead animal left out to rot. There is the pride of man being eaten. The taunt continues to laugh at how far he has fallen in verses 12 through 15. The king of Babylon liked to describe himself as day star, son of dawn, as if he were as permanent as the sun rising in the east, as if he could ascend up to where the stars in heaven were, being like God. But in reality, he was brought low to the grave, fallen to be like any other dead man. He thought he was something and he joined the rest. And then the final part of the taunt shows what happens after the death. In verses 16 through 21, and they despise this ruler. That people walk by and say, is this the man who made the earth tremble and who shook the kingdoms? It's imagining a picture of them walking by the corpse of the king of Babylon, seeing the hollow husk of this powerful man and being like, that dude? Right there? That's the one? that caused us so many problems. And wishing that no more of them come about, they want his kids and grandkids to be killed so there will not be a repeat of this pride. This taunt towards the proud king of Babylon represents the way we should feel about proud, self-interested leaders. They may make a big fuss about their power, their self-made story, their grand legacy, but they are mere mortals. And for some of them, we're better off when they're gone. And for all their bluster, they end up like Herod in the New Testament reading, struck down moments after people called him a god. Because he was no god. He was a man who thought too much of himself. And a man whom people thought too much of. The tyrants may be ferocious in life, but they all die. 
And so Isaiah invites God's people to taunt this fictitious fallen leader, to see the emptiness of human pride and how it always ends the same, how these pompous rulers are not worthy of our ultimate trust, so that when they bluster about their power and their reign and their legacy, we know how it ends. And so Isaiah takes this and immediately applies it for the people of Judah. The historical threat at the time was Assyria, that King Ahaz of Judah wanted to trust in the king of Assyria to save him from these other nations that were going to attack him. And so the very next thing Isaiah says after this taunt is, guess what? Assyria, they're going to fall as well. God is going to bring them down. They may seem frightening in the moment, and our only choice seems to be trust in them. But don't. They will fall. Do not trust in them. But then he immediately follows that up to say, do not trust in yourself either. Because when the big tree falls, all the shorter trees feel a little bit taller. And it's like, oh, we're pretty good now that the big tree has fallen. That seems to be what Philistia, another neighboring nation, might have thought. That in the year that the king of Judah, Ahaz, died, Isaiah warns them, do not rejoice. Just because the rod that struck you is broken. They probably heard that Ahaz, the descendant of David, that giant killer, the giant who was a Philistine, they heard that the king of their enemy was dead and they were rejoicing. And so they taunted and rejoiced at Ahaz's fall. But Isaiah warns them too, just because he fell doesn't mean you're not also going to fall. So with all these trees falling left and right and taunting and don't trust in these people, how does Isaiah want God's people to respond to his words? And for us, how are we to respond today? We should not be overly intimidated or fearful of powerful leaders today. We can be comforted by the fact that the worst and the most powerful of them will die like the king of Babylon. That their aura of invincibility is a mirage. We live in a world where Fox News and CNN make every leader the biggest threat and every crisis the most dangerous event of our time. Isaiah is telling us leaders come and go. Trees grow and trees fall. That all of the leaders are people just like us. If you don't know this, the White House has bathrooms. They are real people there. Leaders are neither saviors or permanent monstrosities. But we must do more than simply taunt those who have fallen or who will fall. Because we cannot go through life simply being cynical, mocking the people who fall from power. Because we struggle with the same pride and selfishness that marks this king of Babylon. Now, yes, we may not call ourselves the day star. We may not say, I will be like most high God. But we can foolishly ignore the fact that we struggle with sinful pride. And as short as our tree may be, God will still cut it down in judgment. Even if we have not grown to the heights of a king of Babylon. So then who can we trust? 
If we are not to put our trust in princes, as the call to worship said, and if we are not to trust in ourselves, for we are also selfish sinners, Isaiah tells us, offering us hope at the beginning and the end of the chapter. In verse 32, at the very end, he says, The Lord has founded Zion, that is the perfect Jerusalem, the ideal Jerusalem, and in her, in God's city, the afflicted of his people find refuge. That there is hope in the city of God among the people of God. That hope is what started the chapter in verses 1 and 2, that God's people have a different destiny, not because God's people are better or less sinful and less proud, but because God has promised in His grace to bless His people for His own sake. He has chosen them to bless them and give them a future. And the good news for many of us is that His people are not limited to Abraham's descendants and to the nation of Judah, but we are told in verse 1, that the sojourners come and trust in this compassionate God of Jacob. We can trust in this God because he is not like the king of Babylon. Yes, our God is an all-powerful God, but he does not use his authority abusively to take from others. He uses his power for good because he is good. And we see that power used for good most clearly in Christ, the descendant of David, the descendant of Ahaz, the promised king, who did not demonstrate power in shows of strength and cutting down, but he showed it by himself coming down, humbling himself in weakness. We celebrated recently at Christmas that the Son of God left his glory in heaven, humbling himself, taking on human flesh, born to a humble family of little means, living a common life under the reign of an emperor, a Caesar. And when he grew and began his public ministry, he announced his kingdom, the kingdom of God. And he did not build an army. He did not take the world by force or scheming. He showed humility. He healed the sick. He cared for the poor. He welcomed the outcasts and he forgave the repentant sinners. Yet even though he came as a king like that, even though his reign did not make the earth cry out, when will it end? There were still some power-hungry little kings of Babylon who saw him as a threat. And they conspired to kill him, taunting him at his death, wanting to see how powerful this Son of God was on the cross. Bring yourself down from there. And when he died, it seemed that Jesus was no different than any other man, be it the king of Babylon or some slave in a far-off country. He seemed like a man not worthy of our ultimate trust. He was laid in a grave where worms and maggots would consume his body. And yet... And yet, on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Showing that Christ is not like other men. He is the Son of God, the King who reigns over heaven and earth. He is the refuge for all mankind, showing that he is not only greater than the other kings of the earth, he is greater than death itself. And he alone has that kind of power. So in this world where we are told to put our trust in all sorts of leaders... Or we are tempted to cynically mock every single one of them and go through trusting nobody. We have a God to trust. Why put our ultimate trust in lesser men and women 
Why put our ultimate trust in world leaders who come and go? Why look to them to bring about peace and justice? Why fear them when we know that the worst of them will be brought to an end? Yes, some of them cause the world to shake with their moods. Yes, they seem to hold the fate of many in their hands. But there is a higher throne and a king whose reign will never end. And he is a good king. And he is a loving king. A just king. A king who is worthy of our ultimate trust in life and in death. Let us pray. Well, Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust in Christ. Help us not to put our trust in princes. For when they perish, so do their plans. Help us to not fear the rulers of the world. For we know that your kingdom will never end. And for those who have trusted in Christ, we are secure in that kingdom. Father, we pray that we would be citizens first and foremost of the kingdom of God, living for that king, obeying his word, and living as heralds of the good news of Christ. Father, help us to trust in you.